0: welcome to inside the war room Ryan Ray here as always so good of you to return once again hope this holiday season is treating you well wherever you may be today we have on another author talking about Apollo 1 in the book Apollo 1 the tragedy that put us on the moon the author is of course Ryan Walters which leads me to our sponsor audible this is how i found this book this is how you can find this book especially if you get a, I think I get two credits a month, but I think the one credit a month plan works the same. If you get a plan with Audible, they have all kinds of free books that are included. Well, okay, you you get the plan, but you see what I'm saying. Um, All kinds of books are included. All you have to do is go to RyanRaySenior.com slash Audible, RyanRaySenior.com slash Audible, and then sign up for your free trial, and you can find books like Audible, uh, Audible One, Apollo One, and many, many, many more. Okay, today's guest is, of course, the author of Apollo One, Ryan Walters, who is a historian and author and is can be found rather I should say at ryanwalters.net. And with that being said, let's get into the show. Well, Ryan, it is lovely to have you on inside the war room. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Okay. Yeah. So let's always love talking to authors because they always kind of have a, an interesting perspective. So first I guess what got you in the business of writing and, um, always you know did you always want to do as a kid or something that you developed uh later on
1: well i'm a historian and i teach history at collin college and <clears throat> uh, north of dallas and uh it, you know writing just kind of goes along with it and uh it is something i've always wanted to do i've really always loved history and it's really one of the only things i could do um and of course, I like writing papers in school and things like that. And I've always dreamed of writing books, but I just, I never knew if I was good enough to do it. But it's like anything else, you know, you just have to develop your skills and, and get better at it and, you know, pursue your dreams, pursue what you want to do.
0: One of the things I talk to historians is I'm always curious, how do they go about deciphering what information is relevant and what information is not Right. So you've got books on presidents and on the Apollo uh, one. And so how do you go about deciphering? Because these are big topics. This isn't like, you know, what happened to Ryan Ray's life on Tuesday. This is a, a lot of information and a lot of perspectives.
1: Right. It is. Any, any topic that you explore, you're going to run into that. Um, and of course, every writer, every historian has a certain bias. We all have it. It's just human nature. Um, there's no way to write without bias, and I'll freely admit mine. Um, but that doesn't mean you take the sources and sort of bend them to your will. Some people do that. Um, I like to look at all the sources, particularly the primary sources. And, again, you have to take a lot of those with a grain of salt, too. But you have to look at multiple sources and kind of try to dig down and, and find the truth and find out who's really telling the truth and who's not telling the truth, Because particularly when you're dealing with diaries or memoirs or things like that. You know, people will write that for a certain reason, you know, particularly when you're dealing with presidents and politicians, you have to take it with not a grain of salt, you got to take it with a sack of salt when you read those types of things, because they're trying to, you know, sh- you know portray themselves in the best light. So you have to look at a multitude of sources, uh, mainly primary sources, Um, and from different perspectives, and you're, a historian is an investigator. I mean, you're really no different than a, you know, a police detective or something like that. We're just answering different questions, obviously.
0: I remember reading, oh, a few years back, a bunch of um, different books on the Civil War, so on Grant, and on Ulysses Grant, and, uh, I mean, Ali Grant, and all the, you know, kind of big figures, and um, I went through Grant's memoir, and, and one of the things that struck me uh, obviously, I don't have a stance on his drinking. Was he an alcoholic or not? But I know that's kind of a, a debated point for some people. Um, but one thing that did strike me was, uh, A, he never mentioned that. So it was kind of hard to tell really what his stance on it was, to your point. Um, but B, he would make these passing comments. And to me, the passing comments almost had more credibility because he would say, well, you know uh, i can't recall them the rebels or confederates or whatever uh their, their paper said this yesterday which is really odd because that's not what happened and and so but it wasn't the main point it was kind of a throwaway point he's making in a larger context and i was like okay i guess you had to give that some weight because he wasn't driving you to this narrative he was just saying well i did this and this and then this happened and so um but i always wondered how do you evaluate even in those what he's saying is true or not because i know he's uh, you know, at least controversial from certain perspectives. And so um, I'm very sympathetic to that as a non-historian, just reading primary sources. It's very, right. it's very difficult.
1: And that's one thing you learn in grad school. If you go to a good graduate program, you you learn those in your graduate classes, how to do that. And you're doing papers and a master's thesis and you, and you move on. And of course you're learning from historians that have done it. And, uh, and you just you really have to do the best you can, but you mentioned the civil war and that kind of boy, there's a lot of historical scholarship on that from different angles I mean, I, I tell my students all the time, I think, don't think of history. You know, Henry Ford supposedly said history is just one darn thing after another. It's mm-hmm. really not. I mean, you can read diff- several books on Gettysburg or, or different stories in history, and you're mm-hmm. going to get different perspectives. Oh, yeah. Really I agree.
0: Well, so the only time that I've ever read a book um, that has a historical perspective that I was involved in was uh, The Frankers by Gregory Zuckman. And I wasn't involved in it like a primary character. I was just a minion that happened to be in the scene of the larger narrative. So like he's talking like about Chesapeake Energy and all this, the, the show Revolution. Well, I was working for a lot of companies. And so I I knew what had happened from my perspective. And I've, I've, I've equated it to... Um, you know, like in World War II, if you're fighting a major battle, you're not sure why. You're just you're told to go fight a battle like a private. Uh, and then after you get home, you read the papers and the journals and the, and the general's reports like, oh, that's why we did that. So my perspective on it was one way. And then when I read his book about why they were doing what they're doing, it wasn't always aligned because, um, you know, he's some of the CEOs and the the boards and all this stuff. And so uh, you talk about multiple perspectives. That's really where it gets interesting because, you know, my perspective on some level was accurate because I was there, but also, had a very limited vantage
1: point. Right. And when you're, when you're reading a memoir, say from a private, and he's in the battle of Gettysburg or, or Spotsylvania or whatever, he's telling about, you know, this much, his position where he was on the battlefield and a little bit to his left and right. right. That's, where, that's his perspective. So like you said, when you read a general's report, you're getting a, you're getting a much larger uh, viewpoint, of what was actually going on but it, but they're both important you got to have forest and you got to have trees
0: right right so you have uh several books the one that caught my attention um maybe to reach out was on uh Apollo and the the kind of the the genesis of this the space race and so um what about that period of time struck you to make you want to write about it
1: well I've always been interested in the space race I've kind of always been a a space cadet, I guess, a space nerd, whatever you want to call it. I've always been interested in the space program and um, certainly wasn't going to be an astronaut. I mean, I'm a historian because I can't do math or science. So <laughs> I like the historical aspect of it. And I've always followed the space program. And, and of course, one of the eras that I've studied a lot is the Cold War. Mm. I'm writing a book now on the Vietnam War. And of course, this is sort of the same era. I always wanted to do a book on the space program. Of course, there's a lot of books on the space program. There's particularly it's just past the 50th anniversary of the landing on the moon and that kind of thing. There's been a lot more interest in it. And I looked at several things and I kept thinking, you know, what am I going to write about? And I was riding around one night in my car and um, running some errands and stuff. And it, it just hit me uh, to write on the Apollo 1 tragedy, the fire, the catastrophic fire of Apollo 1. January 27th, 1967, Um, there's really not been a book about it um, in a half a century. Uh, There was a couple that came out. Well, there's actually only been one book, complete book written on it. In 1969, and it was very, very anti-Apollo, very, very anti-NASA. The, the title of it was Murdered on Pad 34. So <laughs> that sort of gives, we're talking about bias. Right. I mean, you, right. you look at the title of that book and you think, wow, I know what that's about. I mean, right. you know that, that NASA was negligent to the point that they murdered these three guys and it'll happen again and that kind of thing. And I thought, you know, that's just really, really not... Uh, Really not good. I think we need a, a positive portrayal. And a lot of people didn't know anything about the Apollo 1 disaster. People I talked to when I was said, hey, you know, I think I'm writing a book on Apollo 1. Uh, what? Mm-hmm. What is that? When, when a lot of people, even people that were alive at the time and that were of age, couldn't really remember it. I even asked my dad. He's like, yeah, I, I kind of remember something about that. Uh, but so I said, we need a fresh perspective, more positive portrayal to really show who these three astronauts were and what their sacrifice meant for reaching the moon. Because one of my uh, conclusions, and it's not anything unique, people thought that at the time, or later on after the moon landing, if it hadn't been for the fire, we probably wouldn't have made the moon. We certainly wouldn't have made Kennedy's deadline to reach the moon by the end of 1969. So it's an important topic, I think, in the whole space race. So I kind of look at the space race as a whole in the book and really look at it through the prism of these three astronauts, Gus Grissom, Ed White, Roger Chaffee, and through the prism of Apollo 1, and how it helped um, change things, and it changed things for the better, it changed things for the overall space program, it made it more safe, obviously safer, because of the tragedy, we had to rethink our approach, and how we did things, and make it safer for the crews.
0: Yeah, it, it's one of those things to where um, there's a book, uh, that I think it's called The Man Who Knew the Way to the Moon, um, talks about the the um, the lander, and how he kind of developed that, and um, you know, you kind of read these histori- uh, historical books on you know, something like this. Obviously, I wasn't born. And one of the things that, that struck me, though, about this time period, and just obviously shortly thereafter, we landed on the moon, was that's a weird, okay, there's always weird points in history, but that's a weird point in history because you'd have, you talk about your dad or okay, well, your grandfather. So think about that moment where you know your grandfather and maybe your dad's grandfather are all sitting there watching someone go to the moon. And so you have someone who had seen maybe the Civil War, someone who had lived through the Great Depression, maybe someone who had fought World War II, and then someone who's like, oh my gosh, the world's my oyster. I can go to the moon. And so that's a it's a, it's a really weird time as far as capturing the imagination of people because you had kind of the old guard who had come from – you know, had to live through some really tough times, and then the the, the kids of that age um, were like, "Oh, we can go to space now! Like, the, everything's open." And so it's a very it's a very tra- transitory time, if you will, um, for for the U.S. and the world. It seems.
1: Oh yeah, my my great grandfather he died when I was about nine years old. course, I idolized him. He was born in 1904 when Roosevelt was president. Theodore Roosevelt,
2: was president. <laughs> right.
1: The year after we we the, the Wright brothers flew in 1903. I mean, you think about that 1903. We we reached the skies for the for as limited as it was. Sure, sure. And 66 years later, we're standing on the moon. we flown. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about a catapult forward of technology. It's really quite remarkable to be able to do that.
0: Yeah, and do you think? So we have the Cold War going on during this period. Do you think that that allowed? Um, this catapult or helped the catapult in other words um, right now we're seeing a lot of technological advances but they're not the same they're 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 different um and on some on some level we are advancing very fast but on some levels we're kind of just modifying what we had when you go from nothing to on the moon (laughs) that's a that's a you say 60 years in someone's lifetime um okay we went from nothing to the moon faster than the time the the red Sox won the world series (laughs) and with big roofing right like that's how fast it is that's crazy so do you think the Cold War was a, cat- a catalyst for that?
2: Oh,
1: yeah. Uh, the whole 20th century, but particularly the Cold War. And that's one of the things, the space race itself. Uh, when you think about when we began the space race, and again, we can debate when that actually happened, you know, Sputnik in 1957 and things like that. We didn't reach space until 1961. And these little bitty redstone rockets that we used for the first suborbitals. And you know, if those are listening, if they don't know what a suborbital is, Uh, We didn't have a rocket strong enough to put us in orbit in 1961. The first two missions were suborbitals. That's what Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin is doing is suborbitals. You saw the flight the other day with William Shatner. You just go up, out into orbit, and you come back down. Um, Of course, they came back down in the ocean, you know, 350 miles away. But we didn't have enough technology. After that first flight, we didn't have enough technology to get into orbit. And Kennedy makes his announcement on May the 25th, 1961 hey, we're going to go to the moon by the end of the decade. Um, say what? Say that again? I mean, that's kind of how people uh, uh, portray that. Of course, the, the reality was, I talked about it in the book, uh, he had already sat down with NASA and they had already gamed that out when he announced it. So it didn't really shock them. They had already heard it. Now, the people that hadn't heard it, Oh, it shocked them because they started thinking, wait a minute, wait, we, we hadn't even got into orbit. You're talking about going to the moon. How are we going to do this? So you talk about a leap from 1961 to 1969. That was an incredible leap because there was so much technology that did not exist that we had to figure out in that short time frame. but they put together the team. And of course, when you got basically an open budget, I mean, you can do anything when you just got the federal, I mean, right. at the time the federal budget, um, at the, at the height of Apollo uh, NASA was consuming about five percent of the budget which is an enormous amount about five to six billion a year but nothing today but that was a lot of money at the time
2: mm-hmm. so
1: they had all the money in the world they had you know four hundred thousand people working on all this simultaneously MIT all kind of different universities and, and corporate companies and corporations but it was a tremendous leap in the 1960s in the midst, as you say, in the midst of the Cold War, the, the pressures with the Soviet Union, we got Vietnam going on, the Civil Rights Movement, all that stuff happening at the same time that we've got this project that we're going to the moon. It's really quite remarkable that we did it in such really a chaotic decade. So
0: what is your thoughts? Because I've heard some people that have criticized Kennedy that said that um, essentially... Um that if Kennedy doesn't make that announcement, the Russians probably beat us. But our long-term space exploration would be so much more advanced. We would have had stations built. We could have gone to Mars a lot easier. We could have built it out that way. Um, So net-net, did Kennedy make the right decision?
1: I think he did. Um, Kennedy, and I I talk about this in the book too, Kennedy wasn't that interested in space per se. He was not a space cadet. He, He was not that. He even said it in one of his, You know, he taped a lot of his meetings like Nixon did. In um, one of the tapes, uh, he said, I'm not that interested in space. He went, but he saw it as a vehicle to use to beat the Soviets. That's what he saw it as. He realized this is something that we can do. We can do it in this time frame and the Soviets can't do that. And that's the, that's the perception out there. And probably a lot of people still teach that in history was that the Russians were really uh, way ahead of us. And we had to catch up. It's not really true. Um, I talk about some of that as well. They were actually making as many mistakes if not more than we were with a totalitarian system and no free press. They got their space um, center out in the middle of nowhere. So they could blow up everything in the world and nobody knew it. Now, us intelligence officers did know it, but we didn't reveal any of that to the public. We just kind of kept it secret that we were, you know, we, we knew what they were doing. We knew they were blowing up. We knew they were fake, and we knew they were lying about a lot of what they were doing. I don't believe the Russians had to ever had the technology to go to the moon. I don't think they were getting anywhere near it. A lot of what they were doing was smoke and mirrors and, just, pro- just things they were doing for propaganda purposes. And we had a step-by-step methodical approach, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, to get to the moon. We were doing it like building blocks. Um, they didn't have that plan at all. And so how
0: much, and this is the, a, a weird way to, to think about it, but on some level it's true, how much did the Nazi Nazi regime help the U.S.? Because obviously one of the characters in the book is a, is, you know, is a former high-ranking, Nazi official, have you put him? Uh, did, was, did, the, did the, uh, the um, without what the Nazis were working on in World War II, does this race actually end in the 60s?
1: It, it would have probably been difficult because we utilized those German rocket scientists and they were they were um ahead of us. Because remember, rocketry, I and I talk about in the book actually goes back to the at least the 1930s. Robert Goddard, we probably got out ahead of everybody else, but there wasn't any interest here. There wasn't any interest in, in the 1950s. Um, a lot of people like Eisenhower just thought it was a bunch of silliness and gimmickry. Mm-hmm. We'd put a lot of our resources in long range bombers. Uh, that's how we were going to do things. Um, not so much in rocketry, certainly not into travel around, you know, in, in space. Nobody was yeah. thinking of that at all, but yeah, the, the getting a hold of, of, of Werner von Braun and his team, because that's one thing we did with Operation Paperclip after yep. the, end of the war was to grab as many of those guys as we could and their plans and parts and everything and bring them over here. Of course, we started building missiles to launch warheads on for a while, but uh, you know, when the, when the space race got going, we realized we couldn't sit around anymore. We had to get involved in the uh, space race, putting a man in space because of the, again, as you mentioned, the Cold War dynamic. Would this have happened at any other time without the Cold War? Probably not because we wouldn't have had a competition. Mm-hmm. Without that competition, and a lot of astronauts at the time, uh, or later on after the success of the moon program, said, "You know, if it hadn't been for the competition of Russians, we'd probably still today be, you know, screwing around trying to figure out how to do it because uh-huh. it was because we felt like that the Soviets were the last thing. Even Kennedy said it, the last thing we would have, the worst thing that could happen is to have the Soviets land on the moon." Uh-huh. And, you know, there's a there's a there's some kind of a show out there now. I can't remember the name of it sort of an alternate history where the oh, to the, the high castle. Yeah. It's it's that there's another one that's oh, specifically okay. about Apollo. Okay. Uh, the Russians uh, beat us to the moon. I can't remember the name of it. Um, but you you think of you sit back and think about that. What if they had beat us to the moon? How would the world have been different? Kennedy realized, you know, for better or worse, we cannot let that happen. Um, and fortunately we we did. But again, as I say, I don't think the Russians had the technology. I don't think they had the plan. Um, some of the stuff that they had was really just junk some mm-hmm. of the spacecraft they had we had some the best spacecraft and, and the best technology and again, a step by step a methodical approach is what would work um, not not just they were just throwing everything they had at it to, to win a couple of propaganda con like the first spacewalk and mm-hmm. things like that
0: yeah and so you have Right. So you have this weird time in history, right? You're coming out of World War II. You're in the Cold War. You have Operation Paperclip, which you talked about. Um, and so you have these former enemies that we fought to the death over now helping us. And, of course, the people that were helping us fight them, we're now trying to beat them to space. And so it's it's, it's a weird time. We when Going back to earlier in the conversation, you talk about history. I'm sure if you... I'm sure there are history books. If you read history books from where the newspaper went it happened to 10 years later, 10 years later, 10 years later, how that's been thought of has probably changed a lot based upon who was alive, how they viewed the Nazis, how they viewed the Russians, how they viewed the Cold War. Someone like myself, obviously, I was born in 85, so my view of the Cold War and the Nazis and all that is going to be a lot different than someone whose right. son died fighting the Nazis, and now the Nazis are helping us and the Russians. And so uh, that's got to make this all a little bit more just... Uh, sensational from a story standpoint but also just weird to uh, try to decipher what was really going on and, and uh, the motivations and how people really felt because it had to be weird for people.
1: Oh sure it did and, and of course I, I I try to think about that in when I'm studying history when I'm writing I was born in 1973. Um and how would I have felt at the time about Apollo? How would mm-hmm. I have felt about that if I had lived through it? Yeah. you don't you don't know I mean the book I'm writing yeah. on Vietnam now I'm I think Vietnam was a, a great mistake and an unnecessary war. If right. I had been of age in 1965, would I have thought that?
2: Right. Probably
1: not. I, would I probably would not have thought that. Have thought that. Right. Um, so you really can't, you really have to, you have to be sensitive to that kind of stuff, particularly when you go further and further. And I tell my students that all the time, don't try to put your own thoughts on what somebody did a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, because it's, uh, they certainly thought different than you did. And they had different things going on and experiences that you don't have. Um, like I said, I was born in 73, so I, and I, I came of age under Reagan. And of course, yeah, the Cold War got back a little bit hot again. You know, We thought, hey, well, here we go again. Uh, we're going to have a war. So I certainly remember that as a kid. So that's going to cert- certainly slant my view of that, of that part of history. No, no question about it.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So let's talk a little bit more about Apollo 1 specifically here. Um, in, 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 well, I guess before, you mentioned some of the ripple effects. Um, I can't, which one was the one that, Blew up with a teacher on is it challenger or columbia yeah. I was in a-
2: Challenger, 19 yeah All
0: right so if you go forward to to those two accidents that we have with challenger in columbia right. uh that was in 2002 the other one took like 2001 can't remember um you do see this this thought process through nasa where they have um, these crazy standards and just okay we gotta do this 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 but you also see the the complacency and this is something that it's, it's about as high risk as you can get, right? So I guess you have like yeah. a submarine at the bottom of the Marianas Trench where you get crushed, and then you have going to space, maybe diving yeah. into a volcano. Like this is of the things that humans can do for try to explore. This is up there. And so I know they, they understood the risk on some level, but could they have possibly really understood the risk because they hadn't done it? Like when you try to sail the sea for the first time back in the day, did you really understand the risk?
1: Right. And that I go into that in the book as well, because I cover the whole space race. And so they went after military test pilots to be the first. I mean, you're, you're asking somebody to crawl inside what amounts to a tin can on top of a cylindrical rocket filled with high explosives. You know, and when you get into the when you get into Saturn V, you're talking about millions of pounds of high explosives. I mean, if that thing had blown up, you're talking about a small miniaturized nuclear weapon basically going off you know, and you're catapulted into space the most inhospitable environment no air full of radiation all that kind of stuff and then you're going to plunge back into the atmosphere at thousands of miles an hour the, the spacecraft heating up to thousands of degrees you're, you're protected by a heat shield hopefully and you hope the parachutes open and you don't hit the water going 300 miles an hour you walk in a room present that to people you know a lot of people are like um I don't think I'll do that. And a number of military test pilots did not. They decided to remain as test pilots. But they made the right decision going after these guys because you're talking about the hazards of that. I mean, you, don't, you can't get more hazardous than that. And you need people with that type of training because on a number of missions before Apollo 1, uh, and, and even some afterwards, and it's not just Apollo 13, but we had some really close calls on some of these missions, the final Mercury mission, Gemini 8 spun out of control with Neil Armstrong. Uh, you, you, you needed people with that type of training who were used to testing untried aircraft. They don't know when they get in that airplane that they to test it, whether they're gonna be alive or not when the when the, when the when the flight's over. They know that, and that was the perfect people to put in there, and of course, when, when, when tough times come, um, they're able to adapt. I mean, you or I could have been a spacecraft spinning out of control. What would we have done? Probably flipped out and cursed and, and no-tell uh, <laughs> crashed. the thing.
0: Well pants, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Would have filled our pants up and, and that would have been it. But you look at Apollo 13, look at the movie. Mm. And then the scene where, where they have the explosion and, of course, they've got the music going and, and they seem to be panicky. Go listen to the Apollo 13 tapes from inside the spacecraft and listen to them. It's not like that at all. It's just like you and I are talking. They're saying, well, we've got a main bus, be undervolt. We've got a, we had a wicked shimmy up here. we then got an explosion. We got, we're leaking something in space. It's just very calm and collected because they're militarily trained, Mm -hmm. you know, civilians would have flipped out and probably not have survived. So they got the right people with what we've heard this phrase, the right stuff, whatever that is Mm -hmm. um, to do. And they tested these guys over and over and over. And they got down to the best of the best of the best. Um, I mean, they put them in isolation chambers. That would have did it for me. I mean, you sticking me in a little room for a couple of days, I'll forget it. I mean, Mm -hmm. think about that in a spacecraft. Look at the Gemini spacecraft. Um, I I tell my students this all the time. Think about a, a sports car. You and your best friend go sit in your car in the front seat, strap yourselves in, and sit there for two weeks and you can't get out of it. No, no, no. no. That's what Gemini 7 was, a two week mission. So just, just just, imagine that. So you had to have people with the right stuff to be able to endure that.
0: And the other thing is, is that you, you only have to have the people that are willing to do it. Because there's been people who have had that stuff in various capacities all throughout human history. Um, but you had to have, you, you touched on this in the book and you, you mentioned a minute ago, the right president, the right leader, the right support staff, and because, you know, Eisenhower, um, you know, like you, you said, he, he, that wasn't really he was like, ah, it's not really it's a waste of time. What are we doing? We're wasting our time. And if he, for whatever reason, would have been president when Kennedy was, we probably, you know, whatever the Russians do, they do. And maybe we never get to the moon. And so it's, it's, it's um, you had to have a leader who's willing to risk the lives of people who are willing to risk their life. And th- you don't always have that either. Like that's a, that's a combination you have to have.
1: Everything had to come together uh, to work. And Eisenhower, you know, he had approved Mercury and they had uh, to put a man in space. Wasn't, you know, turning cartwheels about it. And the, and the idea of Apollo was conceived while Eisenhower was president. And he had approved it, but not necessarily the funding it was going to take. It wasn't really a plan, but he said, yeah, we need to go forward with this. But that's about all he did and of course later with Kennedy they they're putting the plans together and putting the budgets and they're saying well this is probably going to cost us somewhere around 40 billion dollars which was a huge sum in those days and Eisenhower's exact words were this is nuts, to spend <laughs> 40 billion dollars to send man to the moon for essentially what he thought was just a propaganda effort it didn't have any scientific value we can do the same thing with unmanned probes and a lot of the scientific community too said that there are a lot of scientists that didn't favor Apollo because They thought we can do the same thing with machines. Why risk men? why why spend this kind of money um, to do this? But I think there's been a lot of benefits. And as we've talked about technology wise, I mean, look at the jump in communications we had to make. Um, How do you communicate with somebody on the moon? No way to do that in 1961, but we had figured out that we start putting satellites up, communications satellites. all of these things came out of that um, program. So there's benefits for the money that we spent.
0: Well, and that's the other thing, like um, on some of the podcasts we've had on people you know, with China talk about China stuff. And, and one of the things I pointed out is that, you know, there will never be, as long as there are satellites in the sky, another Normandy like invasion. You can't have Normandy again because now we can see when troops are moving, where they're going. You know, you can't do that ever again. And so that kind of, you know, um, battle with the ships and not knowing like Midway and like all that stuff. I think that's part of the captivating reason, uh, uh, uh captive, captivation of World War II is that it's kind of a weird time yeah. set in history. And that's because we had the space race right shortly thereafter, which changed all that. You can't go back to World War II because now we can see everything. Right. Once you can see everything, all of those things that we did in World War II, they're no longer, they're no, they're, they're no benefit.
1: The, the Japanese could not have snuck up on us in Pearl Harbor. We oh. didn't know exactly the second they left port and what they were doing. Um, none of that stuff was happening and, and as technology changes what else has to change but our tactics and how we approach war and and different things so yeah there's there's been a there's been a it changed a lot of things I always try to think what would the world have been like if we had not had a space race how far behind would we be where we are today? no way to answer that question but it's just kind of fun to think about it and speculate probably a number of decades behind I would think
0: well yeah I mean <laughs> I always talk about the impact on um communication has in the world and so like you know i have friends around the world and we talk on whatsapp okay well uh now mm-hmm. i'm not saying WhatsApp is directly related to the space race but it, it basically is downline from the space race And th- that we're talking me and you're talking over zoom and you talk people over satellites there's all kinds of things you can watch tv i got a serious accident in my car like there's all kinds of just crazy things yeah. My my internet is actually satellite it comes from the satellite somehow i don't even know how that works but I, I don't have a fiber here and so it's coming from some some satellite and so it's um However, that happens, I don't even know. So yeah, there are so much, so many things that we benefit from.
1: Yeah, and it's and it's and that technology leads to more technology, which leads to other technology. and it just goes forward like that. And um, that's what we're seeing. I think we're seeing a direct result of that. I mean, I think the SpaceX with Elon Musk and and Bezos. I, I, I think all that's wonderful. People ask me that all the time. What do you think of? It? I think it's great. I think it's uh, great to see that. I'd like to take a ride myself. I'm sure they won't ever get to do that, but um, I would certainly climb in if they let me, but I think it's great. And I think a lot of the things that came out of Apollo and and that kind of thing, they're using that today, particularly the safety features and all that came out of Apollo. Um, So it's, 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 you know, they're standing on the, they're standing on the shoulders of Apollo doing the things that they're doing. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so you talked about, the the men that had the right stuff. And so in the book there's a there's a comment I think a, a reporter or someone asked these guys, "Hey, you know, do you want to do it or why do you want to do it?" and they're all like, "Yeah, yeah, they're like yeah, we yeah, we all want to be the one. You know, we don't want to be second. Um I, is that still prevalent you think in um space exploration? That's a, do you think yeah. that's still that that kind of mentality.
2: Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, look at all the people that are applying to be astronauts. It's not just SpaceX. It's not just Jeff Bezos, Blue Origin, and some of the other companies we've heard about uh, getting involved in this. But of course, NASA's getting back going, ready to go to the moon. We had a target of 2024. They're not going to make that, but they've got a couple of spacecraft. They're going back away from the shuttle concept. The new spacecraft looked almost identical to to Apollo, at least in design. They're, They're bigger, obviously more modern, but um, they're getting ready to begin testing those. And there's a lot of people that are signing up to, to, to be astronauts. Um, so yeah, I think it's absolutely there. You always have people that want to do it. Um, I'm scared of heights, but I I would do it. I mean, (laughs) I I would, I would certainly do it. Um, uh, now, I couldn't turn that down, but yeah, there's a lot of people that, that, that not only have the, the 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 right stuff or the guts or whatever the courage to do it, but they have the smarts to do it. I mean, you know, you have to be well versed in mathematics, and and uh-huh. with me, um, I had a violent collision with math in the first grade, and. You know, I got through math and school and college algebra, and I I have not spoken to math since college and college algebra. So you don't want me flying anything. I can tell you that right now. Um, But I I think it's great. I'm glad I I see a lot more people, you know, around town and things. You go to the mall or whatever and, and you're in town. I see a lot of people with NASA shirts on and NASA stickers on their car. So I think there's a there's a renewed interest in it. And I think that's good because I think it kind of dipped down for a while. People weren't interested, you know, I know, I know Trump came out with space force and he mm-hmm. really pushed to go back to the moon. And I don't know if that's what did it or not, but I'm I'm happy to see that. I think we need a vibrant space program, but I think we need a, a NASA program. But I think it's good that we're having the private companies as well. If you look, I mean, look at the technology that they've got, right. that booster putting them into orbit and then coming back and landing back down on mm-hmm. them. That's pretty incredible.
0: That is incredible. When I was in, uh, elementary school. I lived in Monroe, Louisiana. And there's an astronaut from Westboro, that's the twin city there, and uh, he came to our school and spoke. and He told us that by the time, so this had been before the year two thousand, because so it had been probably ninety four and eighty five, something like that, 96, that we'd be able to fly from New York City to to L.A. for lunch and back. They had some supersonic plane that they would have. Okay, they still don't have that. NASA doesn't. I, and I remember maybe in high school or after high school, watching them try that thing out. Um, and part of the thing with the space exploration is I think that's part of it. People lose interest because you make, you might make a big leap and then the next big leap takes forever. Like getting to the moon is one thing getting to Mars. It's not, it's not like you cross a small <laughs> hill and now you're ready for the next big hill. You cross like a little bump. And now you try to cross the Rockies. It's, 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 it's just orders of magnitude so much different. I think that's, part of the problem with keeping the interest of the, of the general public.
1: And I think you're going to be surprised that it's going to be one of these private companies that do it first, mm-hmm. uh, not the government. Because um, right now I think a, a mission to Mars would be like a three-year mission. It takes like nine months to get there. But if you think about it, that's with the existing technology, one of the things they're working on that I've heard is, well, why don't we figure out a way to get there faster than nine months, faster engines and that kind of thing. And we can increase that. Um, again, is that worth it? I don't know. There, there's a lot of people that think it's very worth it. I, again, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but uh, th- there seems to be interest in, in, in possibly going to the moon and creating a moon base and leaving from the moon to go to Mars would be more efficient. Um, a lot of asteroids, they, they have trillions of dollars worth of minerals on them. so there certainly could be some economic benefits. And I think that's what you're going to have to do to convince the public. You're going to have to have a cost-benefit analysis. You're going to have to show people that we got to spend billions of dollars, but we're going to reap these rewards. Because if you don't, um, the public's going to lose interest. Again, going back to it, the Cold War dynamic, people were
2: mm-hmm.
1: very interested. Of course, you'll be surprised in the book, I talk about how the public opinion polls were falling during the space program people were losing interest as it was going forward and of course after the apollo one fire you get polls for the first time uh, where a majority of americans don't think the space program is worth the cost in terms of money in terms of life so it goes up and down and of course people are back excited when we finally land on the moon and that kind of thing so it's, it's something that goes up and down but i think you're going to have to show people that there's a benefit to it
0: it goes up and down and it, it seems like if there's an aircraft, uh, airplane crash tomorrow, uh, you'd probably have some polls yeah. in the, right? But it's not the same as if uh, Elon Musk or one of their rockets blew up tomorrow. Not not blew up like they've been blowing up all the time. Like someone with people actually, if William Shatner's thing would have blown up, right? The public sentiment would have shifted. And that's because it doesn't touch enough people, right? It's more of, you might, yeah. you know, no one really knows I mean, how many people know astronauts, not many, you know, so you don't know people who work for NASA. Like, it's, it's very far removed from the general public. And so I think their will to support it, um, it's it's exciting when it's going good. But then as it goes on, it's like, ah, whatever. And then if something bad happens, the, the questions come because it's not front of mind for you.
1: Yeah, that's what happened with Apollo 1 after the fire. A lot of people thought this is – because what helped Apollo move forward, and people ask me all the time, well, how did they – push forward. I mean, you got polls saying the majority of Americans don't think it's worth the cost. I think one of the things that there was so much going on in the 60s, mm-hmm. looking at what was happening in the beginning of 1967. Vietnam was getting worse by the day.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and people's attention span, it didn't take long to shift away from the fire, away from NASA, because it was almost two years we didn't fly. Uh, we, the fire was in January of 67. We didn't fly again until October of 68. So they had a lot of time with which to reevaluate, redesign the spacecraft, put in some safety features. And then, of course, people then now Everybody's talking about Vietnam, of course, the Tet Offensive and all the horrible incidents in 1968. By the time we're back to flying NASA, a lot of people were ready for some good news. I mean, hey, finally, we're doing something right. I mean, you know, 68 was such a bad year, but it ended on a positive note with Apollo 8 going to the moon uh, around Christmas time. So. Um, You know, all those things change over time. And NASA just had to put their head down and say, look, we spent this much money and we can't just abandon the project now. And even the three guys that died had had been on record as saying, and and most of the astronauts had said, look, if something happens to me, keep going, keep the program going. I mean, something's going to happen to somebody at some point in time. We can't just quit because we lose a few people. How much do you
0: think the public – understands the general risk we talked about some but how much do you think that the public understands like when you say that comment to me my first thought is i wonder if you'd say that after you died or i wonder if your family would think that like right, right. right but 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 also i'm not the guy who's gonna get in there and risk my life to do that either so yeah. it's, it's it's a big disconnect right because i wouldn't do it my wife wouldn't want me to do it but these people are doing it and their wives presumably or husbands or whatever i uh, would presume would, would support them so I guess it's uh, uh, an interesting uh, di- dynamic there because you have these people who put extraordinary risk. And someone like me is like, no, <laughs> I, I would never consider that.
1: Right. right. And, and I talk about their wives a lot in the book, too, particularly the night they were they pairs. They were married to military pilots and, and most of them were test pilots. They knew the risk as well. as Their husbands. Did. I mean, they're very well versed in that. And they knew at some point in time it was going to happen. I mean, you really have to be a special lady, really, to be married to one of these guys, because you know that. You know, they know that on those test pilot missions when they were in the Air Force or Navy, that there was probably a one in four chance that every day they left to go fly experimental aircraft that they may not come back. Now, you, you think about any other occupation. You're married to an attorney. I mean, he's not, he doesn't have a one in four chance. <laughs> that's a pretty bad courtroom there if he's, if he's yeah, got, that's
2: kind of. bad.
1: but, but these, these, these ladies know that they knew what they were getting into. Doesn't make it any easier. I'm not, I'm not trying to say it was sure. easy on them. It certainly wasn't. Um, but I, again, I talk about all three of the wives in the book and, 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 and the, the, the NASA officials and astronauts, because they were all kind of a tight knit family, particularly the wives. They stuck together because they knew that these guys uh, were risking their lives. And there were some astronauts that were killed in plane crashes um, before they even flew in their mission. So they kind of, they call it togethersville. You know, they were kind of together and they always supported each other and they sort of had a network. And that was important as well.
0: What's the most important (laughs) lesson learned from Apollo 1?
1: Well, I think the most important lesson was, uh, the lesson they gleaned out of it is, we had a good plan going forward, but we got in too big of a hurry. And you set that deadline like that, and that became the most important thing. And a lot of them would tell you, even today, and of course, I know a lot of them are dying and that kind of thing. a lot of them were losing people in the original NASA pretty frequently. But they would tell you, and they'll tell you now, the ones that are alive, you know, we got in too big of a hurry. We didn't really think through exactly what we were doing. I mean, putting 100 percent oxygen inside of a capsule like that on the ground under that kind of pressure, over 16 pounds per square inch. Um, all it takes is one itty bitty spark and it causes an inferno, which is what happened. Flammable material in it, all of these things that we just didn't think through. Even though we had data to support the fact that 100% oxygen is highly flammable, we don't need to do it, S- scientists have been saying that. So. I think they learned a lot of lessons, and they re-evaluated things. They, they they redesigned things. It made space travel much safer. A lot of NASA officials would say it got a lot safer. But but we had to we had to learn a bad lesson. We had to lose three guys and derail the program. But it made it a lot safer. And the and the spacecraft that they created afterwards, uh, when they redesigned it, and I talked to one of the engineers that was on that design team, it was a magnificent flying machine. Um, And sometimes it sometimes it just takes sacrifice, you know, to do that. And I think you have to understand that when you when you when you do something like that. So I think that's why you're seeing NASA go a lot slower going to the moon this time. You don't see Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. They're not they're not in any race or because they're having a little bit of fun with each other, but they're not in any hurry like that. Um, And I think that's good. You know, think it through. don't get in too big of a hurry. Don't risk anybody's life on it because it's not worth doing that.
0: Yeah, it's almost as if if um, Apollo One succeeds, you might have had more problems down the road because yeah. you didn't learn yeah. that lesson. And it it wouldn't you know a catastrophic event like this happens. It's not just oh there's this thing. You you pull the whole schematic out right and you're looking top down and reevaluating everything. And so um, it's it's a terrible loss of life, but then yeah. you also
1: there was a accident coming, um, no doubt about that. And, and, and other astronauts after would tell you that, so They there's, there's there's something coming on this particular spacecraft. And think about this. We lost these three guys during a test. It wasn't, and that's the thing people need to understand about Apollo 1. They were not about to launch into space. This was a, a test of the spacecraft where it happened. If we had been on an actual mission and had lost three guys in space, Mm-hmm. that might have been enough to derail the program. I mean, the way public pressure, Congress was getting involved. They were asking questions and particularly after the fire, they held hearings. If we had lost a crew in space, that might've been enough to kill it, right? There There might've been enough opposition then to say, no, we're pulling a plug on this. So that's the point that the subtitle of my book is the tragedy that put us on the moon, because if without the tragedy, we, we would not have made Kennedy's deadline. It may not have made it at all because if Apollo one had been successful uh, ones behind it would have had an accident. We might've, we might've never made it
2: Yeah, it's, so it's, it's really one of
1: things where it's where it's an accident and it's a tragedy, but there's a silver lining.
0: Right. Yeah. It's really weird because if the space, if the rocket blows up on the pad on a test mission, it doesn't get the fanfare. It's kind of, I mean, it, it, it's just, it's just not, you know, it's not on TV. Everyone's watching. If it goes to outer space and blows up, they die the same way, the same manner. It's just a different location. It has a completely different feel and people react completely right. different. And, and it's, it's the same tragedy. It's just the location changes. And so people's perception of it, um, gets magnified. Or, what if
1: our, <laughs> yeah. What if, what if that spacecraft would have failed on the way to the, and they'd have crashed into the moon, cr- you know, crashed yeah. into the, the surface. I mean, you can forget it. I mean, it ain't, we would never try it again. I guarantee you that. And most of the astronauts at the time thought that they looked back on it and said, you know, if that hadn't happened, we would have never made it. this hunk. Of, and they call this spacecraft all kind of names.
2: <laughs> right.
1: uh, a bucket of bolts was the most widely used. Instance, this bucket of bolts is never going to get into orbit. I mean, it's just, it was that bad. Um, but it took the tragedy to reevaluate it and then to redesign it. And then what they built was uh, a really good spacecraft.
0: So obviously the the death is the most thing, but what what else was the biggest regrets of Apollo 1 after it happened? Because usually there's um, a time where people realize, oh God, we do this. Or, oh, we de emphasize that? What were some of the things that, that NASA came out and said, you know, we really dropped the ball here?
1: Yeah, a lot of it was the safety stuff. And, um, of course, the, the, the bombshell and the really the one part of the book that I really like is the political aspect behind it. When Congress started hearing uh, holding hearings on the fire, one of the things that came out was, a report called the Phillips Report. Sam Phillips was a general in the Air Force and he was over the Apollo program in the, in the Washington, D.C., NASA headquarters. And North American Aviation had the contract to build a spacecraft, and, and they also had the contract to build the second stage of the Saturn V. And they were just hearing things weren't good. Because astronauts are very, they work very closely with the manufacturers. They're out there working. They are uh, working with them. They're, they're seeing it as it's developed. And they were hearing, you know, think NASA was hearing things that it's not going well with North American aviation. So he went out there, General Phillips with a team, and they investigated. And the report he wrote up was very devastating um, to the point um, they said, if you don't straighten this up, we're going to pull this contract and give it to somebody else. It was that bad. Mm. Of course, that was secret. Congress didn't know about it until the hearings mm. and It came out. And it came out very publicly um, about this so-called Phillips report. And NASA was caught you know, fibbing to Congress, which is never good, the ones <laughs> that are providing the money. Um, and so they were, they were caught with their pants down on that one. But here's the thing, they had done that and had gotten on to uh, North American aviation and they had begun straightening the problems out. And they were working methodically and fixing all the problems. It's it just, the, uh, you know, all, all it takes in an atmosphere like that is one problem to exist. Mm-hmm. And were, previous tests had been good before the one that broke where the fire broke out. So they they were they were they were solving the problems one at a time, trying to get to the launch date in February. Um, but again, one frayed wire sparked during that and ignited that oxygen with that flammable material. And there was no because there were so many other things that were wrong. I mean, the hatch itself was cumbersome. It took minutes to get off. I mean, they couldn't get out. There was no way to bleed the pressure. I mean, there was just so many things that they looked at and said, my gosh, why did we think of it? Why did we do, you know, again, going too fast and being too big of a hurry. I mean, you had all of 1967, 68, 69 to get there. Why were you going so fast? The lunar lander ended up not being developed until the spring of 1969. Mm -hmm. So even Apollo 1, you had two whole years, two and a half years, which you really could not have landed on the moon. What was the point of going so fast? And that's what people were saying after the fact. Why were we going so fast? Why were we gathering all this data? Why are we not analyzing this data? And really sitting back and looking and seeing if this was a white approach. They were trying to solve the problems, but but again, they just, they didn't get them all solved.
0: So you mentioned the politicians there. Obviously today, I remember um, Ted Cruz uh, earlier this year was calling for a commission, a bipartisan commission for something. And he's like, well, we need five Republicans and five Democrats and, then we'll, we'll give our, our findings to the American people and they can be the judge or something like that. I'm like, okay, listen, <laughs> the five Democrats are going to say Democrat things. The five Republicans are going to say Republican things and no one's going to be persuaded by this. Um, what was the, what was the general feel of politicians back in this time period? Because today when they speak, I just assume they're lying. Um, should we assume that about the ones in this era or did they have a, a little bit of higher standard back then?
1: Well, uh, most of them did support the program. I mean, there were some that were decidedly anti-NASA. The main antagonist uh, in the Senate was Walter Mondale, mm. um, who ended up later being Carter's vice president, ran against Reagan in 84. Um, I think he died what, last year. Um, he was very much against NASA. He was the main antagon- He's the one that brought out the Phillips report in the committee hearings. And uh, he was, uh, and a lot of your liberal Democrats did not like all the money we were spending not that they were wanted to cut spending, they just thought it should have been spent on education and social programs like that. Mondale in particular. A lot of them just thought it was a waste of time. But ultimately, the, you know, the majority of the politicians in Congress ended up um, siding with NASA, um, particularly Frank Borman, an astronaut who was testifying uh, before the committee. And he finally had enough of it. And he said, stop this witch hunt and let us fly to the moon. You know, stop, just stop and let us let us do our jobs. And ultimately, that's what they did. You know, they continued to. um, Because, again, that budget was about five percent of the NASA's budget, about five percent of the whole that had been trimmed some the year before because they were concerned about the spending. Of course, Vietnam was starting to suck up a lot more money. So they were concerned about that. But they restored a lot of that spending and increased it after the fire, again, for safety reasons and things like that. And a lot of people said, see what happens when you start taking money away. Um, which really wasn't a part of the problem. But, they—they um, they, again, they got behind the effort. But I think Vietnam and a lot of the other problems gave NASA cover. If you hadn't had all that happening and it was just by – that was the only story, it might have been different. But, again, it didn't take long for people to get their mind on Vietnam and, and civil rights and, you know, you know the assassinations in 68 of uh, Martin Luther King, Jr. and and Bobby King. You know, the, the,
0: There's a lot going on. Like yeah. you said, There's a lot and, and, going
1: on. And Apollo got sort of put to the – you know, the, on the back burner in people's minds, and of course, they use that to to move forward and 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 to um, again, as I said, when we started flying again at the end of '68, a lot of people were happy to see it. Thank gosh, we finally got something good happening.
0: Yeah, um, you, you start naming off all those events, in, you know, '67, '68, '69. Right. It's like, oh yeah, that was in, that was in, that was in, that was in, that was in. And After another. You, you just imagine the 24-hour cable news network if they existed huh. back then. <laughs> <laughs> It would have been insanity because it was an insane time in U.S. history for sure. And so
1: NASA was the bright spot, really. I mean, that's one of the reasons Lyndon Johnson wouldn't have dared cut Apollo or anything because that was going on. That was about the only good thing he had going on. You know, Uh, everything was going you know terribly for, you know, don't forget all the riots and all the cities and and you know watts and all of that 65 66 67 uh-huh, and, and uh-huh. horrendous riots the night martin luther king jr was so you know that that was the that was his bright spot in his administration as it was falling apart it was hey look at this you know the space programs going well yeah. um particularly when we got back to flying so that was some that was some good news for the country you look at apollo 8 that flew at the end of 1968. They're the first ones to go out to the moon. They orbited the moon and came back over Christmas. You know, they read from the Bible and all that good stuff. When they got back, somebody sent them a postcard and it said simply, you saved
2: 1968. (laughs) There's a space program
1: that did do that. I mean, finally, you know, that's why they were named Time's Men of the Year, the three uh, astronauts on Apollo 8. Um, Who else could it have been? I mean, 68 was bad from, from Tet all the way to the end.
0: Okay, so uh, one final thought here, the families, they were dedicated, they knew the risk, um, but then going through it, obviously, knowing that your, your loved one might die is one thing, then, then dealing with the conflicting views, the oh, wow, we should have thought of this, it's got to feel a little different on the backside, right? Um, what's the legacy from the family standpoint? I'm sure they do probably, you know, they, they, they probably have, to have some level of mixed emotions.
1: Yeah, I, I'm I'm good friends with Gus Grissom's brother. He's the the sole surviving Grissom sibling. Uh, one of Gus Grissom's uh, other brothers actually died over the summer. Mm. There's one left, and he and I are good friends. He read the book, and really enjoyed it, and um, I've spent a day with him um, up in Indiana at the Grissom Museum um, back during this back in July. I've know uh, and have spoken with Ed White's um, children as well. And it's, I mean, it's, it's tough. I've, I've, I've spoken with Ed White's daughter. She actually lives in Dallas and she and I ate lunch one day and we were talking about that. And she said, you know, it's still hard. And she's never heard the audio or the fire or any of that kind of stuff. And the book she likes, but she said, I, I couldn't read the chapter about the fire. She said, I, I I still can't do it. I mean, it's been over 50 years and it still, um, it still affects her that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's certainly make her brother, uh, um, he reads everything he can get his hand on. So I guess it's how right. people with things different ways. But of course, if, if you're interested in a movie portrayal, I always tell people watch the movie first man, the biopic of Neil Armstrong. There's a part in there about the fire, about the Apollo one fire. And, um, Ed White's daughter, Bonnie, she actually has a, a bit part in that film and she worked with the, uh, the film crews and that kind of thing. And, and I asked her, I said, well, how did you, when you went, she went to the premiere in Hollywood and all that kind of good stuff. And I said, well, how did you, how, how'd you deal with the fire? She said, well, she, said, I had to sit there and watch. It. And she said, I started, you know, tears started welling up in my eyes to see it. But um, she said, I, I did get through it. Um, so it, it's still tough. I mean, it's still tough. I mean, when you're just, she's, when you're just a little kid like she was, and mm-hmm. to, you know, to lose your dad to say, you know, your dad's not coming back. It's, it's, it's easier maybe for the wives to come to deal with it, much harder for the kids. I bet. Yeah, they all had, they all had children. They all had uh, young children.
0: Yeah. I've got four kids myself. And so my oldest is, they'll be 14 this week. And my youngest is two, she'll be three in April. So I've got a little spread there. So I can't imagine And um, I'm 36, you know, how that would impact them. Okay. Well um, the book again, we'll link to in the show notes. Um, Apollo one, the tragedy that put us on the moon. You've got a hand of a handful of other books that we'll link to as well. And you have another book on Vietnam. You mentioned when might that come out?
1: Well, I got it. Well, before Vietnam, my next book is on um, President Warren Harding. It's called the Jazz Age President. It comes out February the fifteenth. Okay, about so in a couple of months, getting ready yeah. to do some work on that. But I'm still writing on Vietnam. It'll be <laughs> it, okay. is, it is a massive, massive effort. So it'll be a couple of years for that.
0: Okay, so yeah, February fifteenth it says on uh, Amazon here. Okay, very good. Okay, good. Well, when that comes out, we'd love to get you on to hear your thoughts on. President Harding. And uh, where else can we send people in the meantime?
1: I have a little website. It's RyanSWalters.net. Um, you can find me there. I got links there. I got my personal email address. I'm, you know, People can contact me through there. I'm not hard to find. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter. You found me on Twitter. So I mean, I'm, I'm pretty open. Just you know, Google That's my right. name and there I am. So I don't hide.
0: Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to link to all that in the show notes and uh, look forward to getting you on again in the future. Thank you for your time today.
1: I appreciate it very much. Thank you.